Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to listeners and those who have liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. In today's episode, I want to talk about a crucial element of martial arts, which is managing your energy expenditure. This has been the difference between success and defeat many times. If you fail with energy expenditure, it could be the last mistake you ever make. In a real-world situation, it might be multiple attackers or an opponent who isn't averse to causing you great bodily harm or worse. There is no referee there to stop him or them from going too far. Mercy is your only hope at that point. You could probably sum up energy management to merely efficiency, but while efficiency is definitely a goal, there is quite a bit more to energy management than just moving efficiently. I'll be getting into many factors, including the effects of adrenaline dumping, many of which are based in the higher levels of performance. The three levels of physical performance are the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. In this case, the mental and spiritual levels are where you control your energy from, and I'll describe how they work. Most of the important lessons I learned about energy management, and that's just a term that I use, come from my competition background. Managing your energy expenditure is something sport fighters and athletes of all kinds are familiar with. When you need to perform for extended periods of time, energy management is probably the biggest factor over whether you succeed or you don't. Probably the most subtle yet profound examples of this are with marathon runners, who must be extremely careful about their energy expenditure. Marathoners meticulously restrict their pace to get the most out of it over the course of their race. They know that if they run even a little too fast in the beginning or middle of the marathon, they may run out of energy at the end. To some, it doesn't matter whether they win the race or not. Many just want to finish or they want to best their own personal time. If they want the energy for that last surge, they must contain their energy until it is needed. Of course, conditioning is a major factor when it comes to physical competition and endeavors. You could consider physical conditioning to be the size of the gas tank on a car. The energy management is the gas mileage you get with the car, the fuel efficiency. It goes even a little farther than that with how gentle the driver is on the gas pedal when he drives. A football, or in the U.S., soccer player knows his competition will last 90 minutes, so his conditioning is tuned for extended physical activity. Football players are some of the best overall conditioned athletes of any sport. Running around for 90 minutes is a remarkable feat for a human being. Note that football players would have a rough time with running marathons because they manage their energy differently than marathon runners do. Marathon runners are also well-conditioned athletes, but their conditioning is not well-suited to football. A boxer, like the soccer player and the marathoner, knows how long he must be able to perform. Typically, a boxer knows ahead of time the number of rounds and the time limit of each round of his match. He tunes his conditioning and training accordingly. The boxer has one wild card factor which the football player and the marathoner don't. He knocks his opponent out and his fight will finish early. That doesn't mean he doesn't train to have the conditioning to go the 12 rounds or whatever it is. He must train to have a gas tank big enough to finish his journey. There have been boxers who were so good at knocking out opponents in early rounds that a strategy of their opponents was to just hang in the fight until they burned themselves out and ran out of gas. It is this aspect which is important to a martial artist. On one hand, it is a tactic to use a surge of energy to overwhelm an opponent in a short time. It's a gamble, and it can work. If it doesn't work, you are left in a dreadful situation. That is, you are exhausted and facing an opponent who has gas left in his tank. You can see how crucial it is that you don't run out of energy before your attacker does. The thing about real violence is you have no idea how long it's going to last. 
There have been some studies about this by different people who have looked at the data as much as can be had. Data on real street fights is not comprehensive, but with more and more surveillance and security camera footage available now than ever before, there's at least a decent sample base to go from. This footage is also more precise in terms of time than from eyewitness accounts, usually from the victim. One of the effects of adrenaline on your body is that it distorts the perception of time. Two or three seconds can seem to take forever. Incidents which last less than 10 seconds can feel like a minute or more. Eyewitness accounts, particularly from victims, can be quite unreliable in terms of the amount of time a fight lasts. Cameras provide far more accurate measures of time. I'll just summarize from the sources I recall reading about. One cannot really consider them to be comprehensive, but they do paint a general picture. Ambushes and street fights tend to be rather short affairs, lasting less than about 10 seconds or so. There are some which last up to a minute or two, but these are pretty uncommon. Very rarely do they go more than that, but it has happened. There is a notable difference between a consensual street fight between two angry individuals and an ambush. The consensual fights tend to last longer than the ambushes, and for a logical reason. In a consensual fight, both parties are ready for a fight to happen. In an ambush, one party is ready and the other isn't. Surprise is a very effective element in warfare. I believe this is one major factor of why ambushes are over so quickly. If you catch your victim unaware, there is very little chance he will be able to defend himself effectively. If you can overwhelm him in the first second or two, you will have such an advantage that the fight will be over before he even knows it. There's a difference between people who want to fight and people who want to dominate you. Only a fool would give their opponent the opportunity to resist or defend himself, much less strike back. These are valuable lessons in terms of strategy. They are also testaments to the fact that waiting to respond to the physical action of another is a risky strategy. Action beats reaction. There's something about this common phrase which sounds absolute. In reality, it's not absolute, but it's extremely close. In the blink of an eye, you can be overwhelmed by a massive surge of energy in an attack. Once this happens, the odds of turning the exchange around in your favor are very small. It's not impossible, but counting on it as part of your strategy would be foolish. Let's look at this from the attacker's point of view. He is like the boxer who wants to knock his opponent out immediately. He uses a huge burst of energy right off the bat in an attempt to quickly overwhelm his opponent. He knows that if he has the element of surprise in his favor, his odds are extremely high that he will succeed in the matter of a few seconds with almost no risk to himself. This is why those who employ the ambush strategy do two things. One, they look for unaware targets. And two, they employ deceptive tactics to set up their targets to be unaware. Unless you're looking for a fight, which I assume virtually none of you are who are listening to this, you're probably a peaceful individual who is not walking around looking to get into a fight. Chances are you want to avoid them. In the course of your normal activities, the chances of somebody starting a fight with you is probably quite low. People are not normally in the state of readiness for a fight. I've heard some self-defense instructors advocate always being in a high state of awareness and constantly being ready to fight. While being aware is a good thing, there's a limit to how aware you can be. I've met several people who have an extremely high awareness all the time, and there's a price to pay for it. You might refer to it as living in a state of paranoia. I'm not sure where you draw the line between merely being aware and slightly alert to being paranoid. Obviously, if you take this too far, you can find yourself living in a state of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is very common among those who must maintain such a constant and high level of awareness of danger. 
I definitely believe in being observant and aware of your surroundings, as well as making smart strategic choices about where you go and the company you keep. However, you must be able to live a life which doesn't turn you into a mental case. Each of us must choose where on the spectrum of awareness and readiness we are comfortable being. You could consider this a long-term energy management strategy. How mentally vigorous do you choose to be when it comes to your security? Someone on the high end would probably search their home every time they returned. If this sounds extreme, I've met someone who did this. It didn't matter if he came home to a house being locked up just as he left it, he would do a full top-to-bottom search of his home every single time he came home. This is one aspect of energy management. I think people who are more on a median scale of awareness would be attentive to the condition of the house upon their return. They would notice whether the house was in the same condition when they left it and nothing was amiss. Same doors were locked, lights were left on or off, no windows broken or belongings removed, etc. How you decide to handle your level of awareness comes from the spirit level. By spirit, I don't mean your religion, but what is deeper inside of you than your brain, which is the mental level. If you feel uneasy at not being certain what is in your house because you were gone, then you will probably do a walkthrough just to be sure. There's nothing wrong with that. Do what you need to do to put your mind at ease. If you feel you wanted to be sure your house was empty, you could look at the decision to do a walkthrough or a search as merely being a strategic one. I'd say it's a smart move. We all make strategic decisions like this every day. It might be where we decide to go, such as a bar where fights tend to happen fairly frequently. It might also be where we decide to live. Some neighborhoods are safer than others. Factors like these are not guarantees, but a wise strategist keeps their eye on the risk factors. Even staying to where the risk factors are low is no guarantee of safety or security. Those who wish to victimize others like to go where people feel safe, as their guard tends to be down. I drifted quite a ways into awareness and security, but only to make the point that energy management is a fundamental concept of life, not just in a fight or self-defense situation. Let's get back to that aspect. The biggest enemies to good energy management are panic and impatience. These are based in the spiritual, which is confidence. You cannot think yourself into being confident. Real confidence comes from a deeper level within yourself. If you are not confident in what you know and what you can do, you will doubt yourself. That doubt can lead to fear overwhelming you, which is what panic is. We all feel fear, but some deal with it better than others. The physical manifestations of fear are hesitation, confusion, scrambling, jumpiness, shallow breathing and holding your breath, loss of fine motor control, and many others. Some of these can be attributed to the effects of adrenaline, but some are not. Adrenaline is the chemical your body uses when it's in a high stress or panic state. Many believe that adrenaline cannot be controlled at all and that your body uses it when it feels it needs it and there's nothing you can do to stop it. I can tell you from first-hand experience that this is not exactly true. With practice, you can learn to influence the body on its use of adrenaline. You can influence your body to dump some adrenaline in your system in lower stress situations. I've both seen competitive fighters do this and I've tried it myself. It is possible and not really that difficult to do. Some like the advantages it gives them, but I didn't care for it. Those who use adrenaline in this way like the perceived advantage of being a little stronger, a little faster, with quicker decision speed. They tend to be speed-based fighters. The problem is that adrenaline is exhausting. Even in small doses, it can tire you out quite quickly. It's physically exhausting to be on the ragged edge of excitement and agitation for any period of time, much less for an extended period such as in a sport fight. Unlike an ambush, a sport fight can last several minutes or up to an hour or more. 
This is an eternity when there is adrenaline running through your system. Adrenaline can run down your energy level in a matter of seconds. It provides great strength for that short period, but after that you are totally spent. If you use only a little, the effects last a bit longer, but you are still burning up energy at an accelerated rate. I suppose this was my first experimentation in energy management, and this was several decades ago. The adrenaline approach wasn't used among the top-tier competitors, but seemed far more popular among the intermediate-level competitors or slightly above. There is a period in there where most fighters get seduced by speed and strength, and pursue that relentlessly. They usually snap out of it when they run into more seasoned fighters who beat them regularly, despite not being as fast or as strong as they are. One way to describe this is the old adage, age and experience beats youth and vigor, or something of that nature. What is it about age and experience that's more reliable than speed and strength? It is true that strength and speed can win fights. They are fantastic advantages. What beats speed and strength are timing and position. Good position requires the wisdom and even foresight to know where you're going to need to be in the next moment, and when you get there you are in a strong posture and stance. This sounds quite simple, but it's not easy. It takes a lot of practice to attain, thus the experience. When you have the good timing and the experience to position yourself correctly, two things happen. One, you make it very difficult for someone who is faster or stronger to effectively attack you. It's not impossible, but it takes a lot of physical effort on their part to do so. And two, you are saving your energy by using very efficient movements. What you are doing is making them work very hard while you save your energy through efficiency. Doing this puts you in a very advantageous position. The more energy your attacker uses, the faster he will burn himself out due to the massive energy expenditure he is using. This is a tremendous advantage to you, provided you can weather the attack. If you cannot, you are in deep trouble. Obviously, this is where training comes in. But just training as hard as you can will only get you used to burning up a lot of energy yourself. From an energy management standpoint, that's not good. Let's say you use a lot of energy and prevail over your attacker. Then your attacker's friend decides to have a go since he didn't like that you just beat his friend. Now, a second physical exchange is starting and you have spent a lot of energy. This is a very real scenario when it comes to violence. It may not be over with one person. That could be just the beginning. In the real world, problems don't always come alone. They often come in bunches. A fundamental of martial arts, and life in general, is breathing. One of the most common problems in a high-stress situation is holding your breath. This is often a problem even in the dojo, when the level of stress is low. Learning to breathe properly takes time in a relaxed environment. It is ten times harder under stress. All the peaceful meditation breathing exercises in the world will not prepare you for how to breathe under stress when you are dealing with violence. Yes, they are both breathing, but they are different environments altogether. It takes practice to learn how to breathe properly in a violent situation. This is one benefit of stress inoculation training. As I mentioned above, adrenaline can be used when your body would usually not call for it. Self-defense situations call for the opposite, though, which is to avoid having too much adrenaline dumped into your system. It may not be possible to fully control the adrenaline dump, but I firmly believe it can be minimized through training. There are people who have high-risk jobs which expose them to terrifying situations, yet they can perform well without encountering massive adrenaline dumps. Soldiers and firefighters are two which come to mind immediately in this regard, and I'm sure that there are others too. They get used to high-stress situations because their training is designed to prepare them for it. 
We can take a lesson from these occupations and the methods that they use to see that they stay calm when it would be very easy to panic. I recall going through scuba training. We were told that if something went wrong, such as you get trapped somewhere or your regulator failed, that you must not panic. Panic is suicide. Keep your head and work the problem. Yes, this is a mental skill, but if you don't have it down, then all the physical traits in the world will make no difference. You will probably die. Even if you know you only have 30 seconds to figure out your problem, focus on figuring it out. You cannot lose mental focus for even a few seconds. If you even start getting anxious, you will be using up precious oxygen in your lungs, or your tanks, faster, which leaves you less time to solve your problem. Fighting is much the same way. If you're breathing well, then you can think more clearly than if you are breathing shallow. In a fight or dealing with violence, you very much need to be thinking clearly and make good decisions. Any mistake could mean defeat. I find the key to energy management is good breathing. I find good breathing goes hand in hand with smooth and deliberate movement. This touches on a subject I brought up in a previous podcast episode, Traits of an Outstanding Martial Artist, where I referred to a calm smoothness. Good breathing is the foundation of that smooth movement and saving of energy. The breathing gives your brain the oxygen it needs to work properly, and the muscles the oxygen they need to move well. The experienced eye sees everything to avoid being surprised. Surprise can cause anxiety, which leads to panic. A savvy martial artist uses movement even before violence occurs to keep a relatively safe position, particularly when their intuition tells them something might be wrong. The eyes, the breathing, the movement, all work together in an efficient way to keep the energy expenditure as low as possible and get the desired results. When violence occurs, small bursts are used, but only for very brief moments and only when absolutely necessary. The relaxed state must be the baseline you return to quickly. Even when using bursts, one must be careful not to use too much energy. It can get away from you very quickly. One approach athletes sometimes take is to make their gas tank as huge as possible, so to speak. They figure they can merely be in such superior physical condition that they can use a greater level of energy for a longer period of time than their opponent. This is a plausible theory, and certainly physical conditioning and cardio is a remarkable advantage. However, one cannot overlook the exhausting factors of adrenaline and constant energy expenditure over time, even a minute or so. It is very easy to hold your breath or lose good breathing control when you step on the gas. This means you might have started with good endurance, but it saps very quickly. Different body types will drain energy at different rates, too. People who are big and muscular have a lot of blood pumping through their heart to feed oxygen to all the muscle mass. They also require the use of more muscle to move their heavier bodies around. People who are leaner tend to have a higher strength-to-weight ratio, which means moving around is less taxing and it's easier for them. Just something to think about when you are sizing someone up. You may be surprised when you watch how fast a big guy gets tired of moving around. I found listening to the breathing told me what I needed to know about my opponent's exhaustion level. Regardless of your size or build, when you hit the wall of exhaustion, you are done. This is something I experienced many times in the past, including on the randoris of my own rank tests. The randori kept going until the students hit that wall, and then went a little longer. It was an invaluable lesson for experiencing how it feels and the importance of good energy management. The longer you can go before hitting that wall, the better you are at it. No one is perfect, and we all have that wall. It's best to know where yours is and to move it out as much as possible. I do suggest conditioning, but I find even more important is working on the skills of energy management. 
These need different drills and practice than paired kata. Extended jiawaza and randori practices are invaluable. There are tangible traits of good energy management and can easily spot them if you look for them. 1. Someone using smaller movements than their opponent. 2. Someone moving slower than their opponent, at least most of the time. These are easier to notice when you are the observer, that is, you're watching two others face one another. It's a little more difficult to notice the energy expenditure when you are one of the opponents, unless either the difference of energy used is pretty big, or you are practiced at looking for it. Once you start training with a mind of conserving your energy as much as possible, you will start to notice when you are using too much. It will become quite apparent. Two major factors which lure you into burning a lot of energy are thinking that speed and strength will win your fight and losing your calm demeanor. This can come out of impatience, fear, or be any number of mental traps you can fall into. The mental aspects to fighting and being in violence are difficult to convey and teach. If you imagine that fighting skill is like a wall and the physical techniques are the individual bricks of the wall, then the mental aspect is the mortar between the bricks which holds them together and makes the wall strong. Without the mortar, the wall is merely a stack of loose bricks and it's easily knocked over. The quality of the techniques that you know are important, but without the connective strength of the mindset to hold them together, you will not be very effective. There is far more to ending violence and surviving it than knowing powerful techniques. Controlling yourself and using your energy carefully will give you the best chance of surviving an extended fight. That requires good energy management skills. What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment. The Spirit Aikido online program is now live. Subscribers get access to video training and mentoring to techniques and training methods I've adopted from other martial arts to make my Aikido more practical. There's a link in the description section. I invite you to check it out. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.